I'm Kate Daniels. There's a saying, the only way out is through. And that might be the positive way to look at the education we need in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our country. I'm talking about Black history. To bring some important insights on learning about bias, about racism, about Black history, is Jason Greer, president of Greer Consulting, a race relations expert and diversity consultant, and now the author of Bias, Racism, and the Brain. Jason Greer, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Kate. I am so grateful to you, to the work you're doing, uh, to your leadership, and just your just your whole awareness and desire to be an instrument of great and good change in our world. So uh, thank you right off the bat for all the work that you do. Hey, I greatly appreciate it. It's, it's, it's necessary. It's necessary to have these kind of conversations, but I'm honored to be able to do this work. So thank you. So, Jason, one of the things that came up in my being offered this opportunity of having a conversation with you is that there was um, early this month of February, uh, there was a report uh, from Utah that there was a school, an elementary school, where they were going to do a segment on Black History Month and parents kind of resisted, kind of, they did resist it. They wanted to opt out, but then they withdrew that. But that still gives this basis of people thinking that, oh, these are things we should learn and shouldn't learn, and uh, hopefully they really learned a great lesson in it. But let's talk about that, why there's this resistance and why we do need to learn about this history in our country, the black history. You know, yeah, this is a great point. So um, I believe the school was um, Mariah Montessori Academy. And, you know, the Montessori system in itself is near and dear to me because my kids went through Montessori education. Um, And that was what was so fascinating to me is that Montessori education is really about sort of tactile learning. It's about, um, you know, communal learning. It's about experiences. And you can't not teach, you know, in the the process of teaching history, you have to teach black history (laughs) because of the, you know, what black people have done for this country and also continue to do. Um, I think that when you, when you give parents the opportunity to essentially censor aspects of history from their kids, maybe they were thinking, and I don't know, and I'm trying, I'm trying to be civil here. Maybe they were thinking that they did not want to, either they were being racist, like we don't want to talk about black people or because of sort of the tenor of the country, especially in the past four years as it relates to race relations, they were trying not to be controversial. The problem is, is that if you handicap children in terms of their learnings of other cultures, in terms of their learnings of what America is really about, those children will then grow up to be misinformed adults. And then that sort of perpetuates the cycle of ignorance that unfortunately we see so often in this country. And there's the the very valid, important point of why the education is so important. Otherwise, we're basing it on a, so much ignorance, uh, lack of information, and, and we create really, I think, at, at times atrocious stories. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the 1619 project that the New York Times did. Um, wonderful, wonderful um, historical learning tool. We're really talking about uh, the legitimate history of the United States, especially as it relates to the slave trade and um, the impact that it has had on African Americans, generationally speaking. Um, but then there was this push by a certain congressional body, or a certain congression, congressional person, rather, as well as our former president, to censor what was being said in terms of American history. I mean, even to the point of um, former President Trump um, essentially saying that any any company that uh, any diversity and inclusion company that is going to bid on any federal projects in terms of diversity training cannot teach critical race theory, cannot talk about anything that in some form or fashion paints white people in a negative light. But again, it comes back to if you're going to talk about history, let's talk about history. Because if the only way that we're going to move forward in terms of this dialogue that we call racial, you know, the racial context is if we're honest with each other. And through that honesty, Kate, I'm going to say some things that you might not like. You're going to say some things that I might not like. But through our honesty, we grow. Through our honesty, we develop. Yes, absolutely. And this is the work that you are doing because you, yes. your company is um, a relations, a race and relations expert and diversity consulting firm. Right. So you're coming in, into contact with that. So I was not aware that there'd been that kind of stipulation that you couldn't talk about race in these diversity trainings. So did that impact you in these last four years in how you did trainings with companies? Yeah, great question. Um, yes and no. So I'll say that um, former President Trump's edict came out around um, November. So this is shortly before, maybe two months before he was going to eventually be um, uh, removed from office. So the edict in itself did not necessarily stand. But what we did see was as companies would reach out to us for diversity training, especially your larger companies that also have federal contracts, um, they wanted to vet our PowerPoints as well as our materials to make sure that there was nothing in them that in any shape or form would anger the administration, right? Mm -hmm. um, what I saw, though, <clears throat> especially over the course of the last four years, and this is not, you know, I'm not slamming um, an administration. I'm not slamming a political party. I'm just going to talk in terms of the question you asked me. Um, race in itself became such a hot topic but it wasn't always a hot topic in terms of I want to learn more. It was more of a hot topic in terms of I saw clear lines being drawn of were along racial lines, along political lines, <laughs> you know, along going down the line. Um, you would see it. In fact, one of the uh, trains that we gave, uh, as gentlemen stood up, so this is after so. My family, we're the victims of cross burnings by the KKK when I was 17 years old. So this is 1991. And the Klan burned one cross for my mother, one cross for my father, one cross for me. They burned public effigies in 
you know, because they were upset because my family had moved into to this particular city. And I remember at age 17, looking at these burning crosses, thinking to myself, I don't even know who I'm going to take to homecoming. <laughs> Yet here I am seeing this, you know, this city and these people who hate me and they don't even know who I am. So I share the story and this gentleman stands up and he said, my heart goes out to you and I feel so bad for you, but I'm not going to allow you to guilt me because I don't believe in white guilt. And until you take care of black on black crime, I don't want to hear any more of the story. And I kind of looked around because I felt like I was in the twilight zone. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) What? Right. Mm -hmm. And before I could say anything, the people in the room just, you know, they let him have it, but it did speak to, to a certain thing that's out there that people unfortunately are sort of are living in their own silos and the idea of, the idea of even sympathizing, let alone empathizing with people who don't look like you, talk like you, therefore they're not you, is becoming alien to people these days. And that scares me, Kate. Well, to be honest with you, it really scares me. Could you explain that a little more fully, Jason? Yeah, not a yeah. problem. Um, you know, when we talk about race relations, race relations, and we have, you know, all these great philosophies, all these great theories, all these great formulas that we can apply to, um, you know, dealing with diversity in the workplace, dealing with diversity in social settings. But really what race relations comes down to is basic human communication, basic human communications between people who don't look like each other. And consider this. America today is more, just in terms of cultural diversity, is more diverse than it's ever been in its history. And yet, unfortunately, we have communities full of people who look like each other, talk like each other, therefore they are each other. And there's not enough, um, if I can say it like this, there's not enough cross-cultural conversations that are happening. And you take it to the social media space, and unfortunately, when it's in the social media space, we don't have the opportunity to really empathize with each other because we can't see each other. So all of our conversations come down to typed words. And so there are not enough spaces that we've created within our culture to really begin that active conversation. Because I always come back to this idea that one of my closest friends in the world, he and I disagree on so many create opportunities to have those conversations because even in the midst of disagreeing with each other, I don't care if it's politically, I don't care if it's racially, I don't care if it's over, you know, whose football team is better. We give each other the space to talk and understand one another. And even if we disagree, we disagree peacefully. We disagree civilly. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing that enough within our culture and that scares me. And that's where I've talked about being scared because um, whether it be the school system in Utah, whether it be people who just want to close their ears and shut their eyes and say, well, if it's not happening to me, therefore it's not happening. We're losing the common human touch that we need in order to overcome so many of these barriers. And, and human decency. 
and human decency. Yes. There seems human yeah, we're, there seems to be such a a lack of that occurring, uh, and that 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 is scary too to th- think of that. Can we hope that maybe that is going to create more of a a, a, a well a, a controlled a, a, a reaction so that we see this for what it is and and really work strongly and peacefully to turn that tide? Um, is that being too Pollyannish? No, I don't think so, because okay, I love what you just said, because we have to have hope, right? right? We have to have a belief that we can be better than this. When you consider, like, let's, let's go back uh, to uh, June. You have the George Floyd moment, which is now it's being referred to as, and you had a nation, well, correction, you had a world that saw a former police officer, Derek Chauvin, with his knee on the throat of George Floyd. I got goosebumps even saying that because I can remember sitting on the couch watching this. I can remember how I felt. I can remember just the sheer panic I felt. I can remember the... I felt so disillusioned. Mm -hmm. But what was fascinating to me was the number of my friends who happened to be white who reached out to me expressing their sheer disbelief over what they had just saw. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And then I hate the fact that this man lost his life. But at least for one month, one month, our country was galvanized around the idea of human decency. Unfortunately, it splintered off into the things that often happen with human interactions in terms of, you know, from a political standpoint, it was seen from a different lens based on your political beliefs, based on your racial beliefs, whatever the case might be. But for that one period of time, we were galvanized around the world with this idea that we are human beings and we have to treat each other better. That comes from hope. So to your point, it's not too Pollyannish because we need more of that, Kate. <laughs> we, need, we need more people saying, we can get along. I truly believe that there's hope for us getting along. It's just going to continue to take time. And I think it's in order to get there, we do have to realize that it, we have to be patient. Unfortunately, human progress is a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, absolutely. And so we began with the story of one small school Perhaps others were like it, are like it. The right. thing is, we're, we we know that education with our kids is important, but right now we're also needing education across all ages because there was that lack of it uh, or distorted information over these past decades and, well, the the whole centuries that have gone before. So there's a lot of education that needs to go on for everyone. All Absolutely. Ages, right? Absolutely. You know, my um, I wrote a book with my co-author, uh, Phil Dixon, called Bias Racism in the Brain. And it really, I keep going back to the term you use, Pollyannish, right? Because that that's the space that I live in, okay? Because if I don't live in that space, I'm scared about what life's going to look like for me. Because I have to believe that things will get better, things can get better, but there are certain people who are just 
brought here to continue that, to further that conversation. And that's how we created this book because the George Floyd moment happened. People across, you know, across the world were asking the question, what can we do? With COVID out there, there was no way that I was going to go join a protest. So I contacted Phil and I said, look, we spent so much time talking about the brain because it's my belief that we don't have as much of a race problem in America or in the world. We have a brain problem because technology has evolved. Our lives have evolved. We're at the point now we don't even have to go to movie theaters. <laughs> we just stream things in our home, right? Right. But the one element that has not evolved is our brain because our brains are still stuck in the days of our ancestors. And our brains truly believe that the, the, the whole impetus for your brain is to keep you safe. It's not just to think, but it's to keep you safe. And there are all these stories, Kate, that are playing in our non-conscious mind that's directing how we look and view the world. And we're not even aware of these stories. And these stories that your brain is consistently cycling are based on your own personal experiences, your genetic experiences, stories that you stories that you told yourself, stories that have been told to you. Like, let's take it right back to the, to the case of the uh, Montessori school in Utah. Kate, imagine if you are eight years old. And prior to every year before, you heard stories about black history from your teachers because they would teach black history. And then this year, you find out that we're not going to have a black history lesson because my parents decided to opt us out of taking black history. Now, maybe they're not in the house saying anything negative about black people. But clearly, there's something wrong with black history because if there wasn't anything wrong with black history, it would be taught this year. What happens is, even if we're not having that conversation within the minds of those children, their brains begin to process the story of negativity about anything and everything black. And then they grow up with this prejudice that they don't know where it comes from, but it's cycling through that constant story in their non-conscious. So that's when I talked about um, earlier when I said you're handicapping these children because whether you say it or you don't say it, it's still implied that there's something wrong with people who don't look like you. And that's what we talk about a lot in the book is the fact that, folks, if we want to accomplish what generations what generations um, long past have not been able to accomplish, and that's coming together as human beings, we have to, the only way we can accomplish that is if we talk. If we agree that we're going to say something wrong from time to time, but I create this loving space for you that says, you got it wrong here, but I still believe in who you are. Mm-hmm. Let's continue this conversation because we owe this to our kids. Yes. And that's where the, the, your, the book truly is such a beautiful book, uh, Bias, Racism, right. and the Brain. Because here, you filled it with stories, you with your co-author, so we really get your experience. And and you mentioned this uh, just a bit earlier about the cross-burning in 1991. It it was shocking to me to read that, then to hear it, 
but because I, in my head, I'm thinking this is something that happened, you know, decades and decades ago. It was more like the in the early 1900s that it happened, not now. So, the fact that it still continues bringing these stories to the forefront for us to to really understand and grapple with and discuss, uh, you were doing us an incredible educational service. Hey, thank you, Kate. I appreciate that. And further to that in the book, what makes it such a great tool, I believe, is that there are these questions that we can ask ourselves. Now, we can do this individually, which is fine, but I can see it being so worthwhile doing it with a in a community atmosphere of whomever you you know you decide to have here, whether it's at work, whether it's in a neighborhood, uh, with family members, right? Yes, yes. Thank you for that. Um, we've been, you know, when we put the book out, we didn't really have any expectations for uh, the impact that it was going to have. We were just hoping to get something out there, and hopefully, it would spur one or two conversations amongst people who are interested. What we've seen, though, is the book has really just taken on a life of its own. It's being used as a, you know, as an opportunity to engage in diverse conversations within um, corporations, uh, churches, school systems. And they're taking these questions that we presented in the book and they're asking the bigger question of what do we need to do within our organization to make our organization as racially understanding, not racially tolerant, but racially understanding as possible, even in settings. And that's why I was so um, alarmed at what happened in Utah, because we've seen our book. Our book has actually been cited in a couple of different organizations within Utah. Um, which typically is more homogenous in terms of the cultural base. But what we appreciate is that diversity is not just about skin color. It's not just about sexual orientation. Diversity in itself is about ideas. It's about classes. It's about who you are, how you show up. So we're – sometimes, honestly, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but I have to pinch myself because I didn't know that this book was going to have the – um, as big of an impact that it has. Mm. I'm just so honored to have been a part of it. You answered the call. Obviously, there was a need, and you got that sense, and you went forward with it. So, you know, we are really the greater for for that. If and But here's the thing. We need to use it. We need to, to put it into action. Yes. Yes. And, you know... I think that was part of my struggle is when the George Floyd moment happened for one month, and I say it's one month, it could have been longer, it could have been shorter, but it felt like it to me. It seemed like for one month we were unified. We didn't agree on everything, but we were still unified in terms of the cause. And then unfortunately, I think that things splintered and it seemed like so many of the movements that were starting to happen um, all of a sudden gave way to fear. It gave way to um, people kind of going back to their norm. Um, But on the other side of that, you have so many positive things that have happened as an outgrowth of it as well. So I I have these moments where... I was sharing this with my best friend. I have these moments where I wonder, is any of this worth it? Mm. Like, are we making any kind of 
contribution that's going to make life easier for my children, for your children, for the people who are going to come after us. And it never fails that whether it's divine intervention, whatever the case might be, that we get some note or we find out something is happening with the book or some conversation is taking place where we realize that this is truly, this is truly good work and we're having an impact and I'm excited about it. It is very exciting and important work. And a question in terms of using this book as a vehicle to engage in conversations and learn and grow and, you know, build this better future for all of us. When we think in terms, when you think in terms of of groups doing this, is it, um, I'm coming at this from having heard that in some cases, people of color don't want to have hard conversations in a mixed group because they don't feel safe. Is yeah. that is that a valid way to look at this and think of having conversations separately? I love your question. Yes. Um, I will tell you that some of the hesitancy, and we actually address this in the book, um, some of the hesitancy for people of color to have these types of conversations with um, um, other groups of people um, often comes down to power dynamics. So it is it can be difficult to have these crucial racial conversations in the workplace, even though they're necessary, in the workplace because you don't want to be perceived as being too black or too Hispanic or too Asian or whatever the case might be. In addition to the fact that you don't want to be seen as being too militant, so you just kind of shut up and don't say anything, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the challenges that in, in the, the workshops that we do, one of the things that I throw out to um, our attendees is someone has to be the torchbearer. And when I say the torchbearer, I mean that if you – like there's some statistics, and I'm not going to quote the exact number because I can't remember offhand, but it's something to the to the effect of that the majority of – White people live in communities that are just like them, that are, are very homogenous in terms of the color of the people that they uh, live by, that they go to church with, that they hang out with. These racial conversations oftentimes people will expect someone who looks like me to come and engage them in these conversations because they want to learn. Well, that's cool. But if you're not also having these conversations with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, with your church members, then it sort of gets lost. And I am hoping, and whether it be through my book, whether it be through you know, other tools that are out there, that people are having these crucial conversations within their families because you can't just expect that people of color are going to be the only ones talking about this stuff. You also can't expect that it's just people of color who are being impacted by it. When we look at the George Floyd moment, when we look at the Ahmaud Aubrey case, when we look at all the things that are happening across this country, historically, what happens to one happens to all. And until we understand that, we're going to continue to miss the mark. Yes. That is such important and great insight. Thank you, Jason. No, thank you. 
there's so much that we to discuss and we've just barely scratched any of the surface I feel but sure. um at, at least I I hope that this inspires some conversation um the book of course as I as I mentioned as we've mentioned is so critically uh important and such a useful tool for for various age groups it can be used I think in high schools so well in community groups uh advanced ed- education. Um, so it's available at all of our favorite book sources, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can definitely uh, get it on Amazon. It was the number one bestseller. I'm so excited by that. And please get the book, engage in conversation, reach out to me. I don't, I love talking about this. <laughs> there's no off limit. Co- there's no off limit question other than how much do you weigh? Right. Stay away from that. Other than that, come on, come on, let's talk about this. Indeed. Uh, So uh, a way to find out more beyond the book is you have a website. Let's mention that. Right. If you go to GreerConsultingInc.com, feel free. You can fill out a form where um, you can contact me and look – Right now, and I counted that this morning, um, I have at least 300 conversations that are going on with people all around the world about race, about culture, about class, about all these various things. And I'm not charging. Please understand, because you engage me in these conversations, it's not like I'm going to send you an invoice for time served. We are just talking because the more we talk about this stuff, I think the better off we're going to be. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful to you that uh, you are so willing to have the conversation because this is the way that we're going to grapple with these tough issues, but the only way that we're going to make some headway and progress and move forward. So thank you for being the inspiration that you are and, and for your invaluable time this morning, Jason Greer. Hey, Kate, you are awesome. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for this platform. I greatly appreciate you. You're so welcome.